name it is. What an honor to be in the presence of the Lord tonight. It's always good to be in His presence. The beauty of God is that no matter where I'm at, He's already there. He is everywhere. So He can be just as real where you are right now as He is around the world. People are enjoying the presence of the Lord all over the world today, and it's an honor to be in His presence. Before I speak tonight, I want to remind you of Sunday that the 9 o'clock service will be for 50 and older, and the 11 o'clock service for 49 and younger. Uh, Don't forget those services for this weekend. Would take your attention to the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter, and then I will read a corresponding passage in the book of Mark, the 8th chapter. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came, and tempting, desired him that he should show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you shall say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather to that day, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the time? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. When his disciples were come to him on the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread, which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do not yet ye understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, neither the seven loaves of the four thousand how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In the book of Mark, the eighth chapter, there is a parallel passage of Scripture, and it reads, beginning in verse 15, And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have no bread? And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why reason ye, because you have no bread? Perceive you not yet, neither understand. Have you your heart yet hardened? Having eyes you see not, having ears hear not, and do not remember? When I break the five loaves and one five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? They said unto him, Twelve. 
And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? And they said seven. And he said unto them, how is it that you do not understand? Tonight, for a few moments, I want to talk to you about subtle warnings from Jesus. The passage of Scripture that I read takes place in the life of Jesus towards the end of his life. Edersheim lets us know that this particular event of the feeding of 4,000 and the feeding of 5,000 were actually part of what took place at the end of Jesus' ministry in certain areas. Feeding of 4,000 or 5,000 takes place at the end of the Galilean ministry. And then there's the ending of the ministry uh, in Judea, and that takes place with the feeding of 4,000. Somewhere after this, they're back at Galilee, and they start over to the other side of Galilee. Jesus is often wearied One of the Gospels indicated that there were crowds so large they could not even be numbered. Jesus was always, as the soonest people heard he was there, there were incredible crowds that appeared, and he had to deal with these crowds. After being wearied from one of these experiences, they head across the lake. It probably hasn't been long after the last feeding of 4,000. It may have taken place the very same day. They head across the lake to the other side. And as they're going, Luke lets, or Mark lets us know that they weren't without bread. They had one loaf. And they were headed to the area of the Decapolis or the area of Galilee that was primarily inhabited by Gentiles. And the disciples possibly were worried about the fact they would have no bread and forgot to bring it. And now they're going to be in a position where they're going to be without bread and they're not allowed to eat bread that is produced by the Gentiles because that would be an abomination. So they were in a fix. What do I do? We have one loaf. Could it be? that they were also wanting to see if Jesus would do it again. And addressing these issues with them, he reminds the Pharisees and the Sadducees that it was as in the day of Jonah. Jonah's generation was looking for a sign, but you're not going to get a sign any greater than the sign they saw with Jonah. Nineveh did not see Jonah swallowed by a whale. They didn't see Jonah spend three days in the belly of a whale. All they saw was this preacher show up and begin to preach with such authority and such power that they were convicted and a whole city repented and turned to God as a result of the preaching of a prophet by the name of Jonah. The sign that the people of Nineveh saw 
was Jonah himself and Jonah preaching. Jesus uses that illustration to tell his disciples there that it is important that you remember that preaching is the sign that's going to affect the people and the world around you. They may be looking for all kinds of signs, but those signs are not going to show up. What they can hear is a preacher stand and declare the word of the Lord, and when he does so, they have heard what God is speaking to them. So this subtle reminder to them is you need to be aware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees. And in Mark, he says the leaven of Herod. When we look at these three groups of people, when we first start with Pharisees, we we discover a group of self-righteous people that had created so many laws that it was virtually impossible to keep the laws that God gave. They had added to the laws God gave Moses. They had over 600 ways to violate the Sabbath day. You couldn't walk more than 2,000 paces on the Sabbath day, or you were working that day, and so a journey of more than 2,000 steps was considered to be working on the Sabbath day. However, if you needed to go a little further than 2,000 steps, just pick an item from your home, take it with you the day before, leave it 2,000 paces away from where you started, declare that's your home, and tomorrow you can walk those 2,000 steps plus another 2,000 steps, and if you need 2,000 more, you just keep taking items and leaving it on the road, and you can go as far as you want to go. You can't wear sandals with nails in the bottom by chance, they may drag on the ground, and they may create a furrow in the ground. So if the wind blew and a seed fell in that furrow and began to grow, you had planted on the Sabbath day. You couldn't carry anything that weighed more than half a fig. You had to wash your hands on a regular basis or you were violating everything. And and you only used a half an, an egg full of, of water to wash your hands. Now, how much dirt do you get off your hands with a half an egg full of water? They had rules, rules on how to break the rules. They made it almost impossible for anybody to get into the presence of God. When Jesus comes, one of the signs of who he's going to reach is the fact that on the day of circumcision, when his parents took him to the temple on the eighth day to have him circumcised. And there in the temple, they had to bring a sacrifice. The sacrifice was to be in line with their status in life. If you were well off, you had to bring a lamb. If you didn't have quite that much money, then you could bring a ram But if you were very poor and you had no money, you could bring a turtle dove. So two turtle doves are used by Jesus' family on the day that he's presented in the temple as a symbol that he came to reach those who had nothing. His whole purpose for coming was to reach the people that everybody else had discarded and didn't think was important enough. And that's what the the Pharisees were. They They were a group of people that thought they were better than everybody else and looked down on everyone else and 
And they prayed prayers kind of like this. Oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I thank you that you did not create me a woman or a Gentile. That's how most of their prayers started. Because that they were, were, were so bigoted in their opinions about females and Gentiles that they, they were nobodies. They, they were worthless. They were throwaways. That was the Pharisees. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a little different. They were a group of people that were very wealthy. They were not only wealthy, but they were into politics on a major scale. So their involvement was to get involved in in the political structure of every city, of every town, of every providence of of Judea. And and it's important to be involved in these. And, And they used their money and their wealth to try to manipulate and control people. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They had taken the word of God and made it almost worthless. The things that were there, they didn't see as being important enough to even keep or to follow. And this is the leaven of the Sadducees. Herod wasn't even a Jew. He's a Gentile. But he had such power and persuasion that he actually convinced Israel to let him rebuild a temple for them. He would make it more beautiful, bigger, and more splendid than the one they had because the one that showed up after captivity was small and it was built by people who didn't have much because they had lost everything when they went into Babylonian captivity. So they come back. And they build a house that the old men cried out and the young men laughed. They danced and shouted because they thought they had their house of God back. But the old men who remembered what was there remembered its former glory. And they knew that there would never be the Shekinah glory of God in that place again. Because when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and they were taken captivity by the Babylonians. They burnt the temple to the ground. They literally destroyed it. And according to Edersheim and Josephus, they destroyed the Ark of the Covenant. So they would never be able to have a day of atonement from that day forward. Herod took the Gentile ideas and tried to intermarry it into the Jewish culture, and their religion. When Alexander the Great conquered Israel, his number one priority was to turn the Jews into a people who would be influenced by the Greek culture and the Greek mindset. So he tried to make Greeks out of them. To a great extent, he did. Because when Jesus came, there was no one looking for a Messiah, no one thinking that God was going to visit them. Only an old man and an old woman were actually paying attention and looking for a Messiah. So Jesus warned his disciples, you need to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You need to be aware of the leaven of the Sadducees. 
You need to be aware. This the warning I give you. Be careful who you exclude from the house of God. Be careful the kind of people that you don't think important enough or valuable enough to be in the house of God. The first church struggled with that because James has to write to them and address this very fact because they were paying more attention to the wealthy they converted than to the people who didn't have much that were coming into the church. And so the first epistle to the church had to address this issue of be careful who you exclude or you don't allow into the presence of God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I don't get to choose who Jesus saved. I don't get to choose who he chooses to redeem or fill with his spirit. You don't get to make that decision. God created them, and God can save them because that's his desire. He's not willing that any should perish, and any includes murderers. It includes thieves. It includes the outcast. It includes the harlot. But it also includes the pedophile and the the most vilest of people. Jesus didn't come that any of them should perish, but they should all come to repentance. Pharisees want to keep people out and limited only to a certain group of people. The Sadducees want to allow their money and their political influence to be the most important factors in a relationship with God. If we're not careful today, we can fall into the same categories that Jesus suddenly warned us, be careful of what you let your world introduce into your life. Because a little bit of leaven doesn't just affect a small amount, it affects the entire group. Before long, everybody is affected by the leaven. Jesus uses an illustration that that, that a, a woman put a little bit of leaven in several measures of wheat, I believe it was four measures of wheat, which would almost be eight and a half gallons in our world today. And that little bit of leaven turned that eight and a half gallons into leaven. What does leaven do? Well, the definition of leaven is quite, it's quite interesting. American Heritage Dictionary describes leaven as an agent such as yeast that causes batter or dough to rise, especially by fermentation. It also means an element influence or agent that works suddenly to enlighten, to enliven, or to modify a whole. It's the little bitty things. It's not the big things. It's the little things that start producing leaven in a people's life. It's those little habits, those those little things that I say, well, maybe that's not going to affect anybody, and maybe that's not important. It's just the little things that we allow our world to convince us it's okay, and, and why not? Because everybody else is being able to do it, and as a result, everybody's doing it. How can it hurt me? It brings a change of who I am and what I really believe. You see, leaven in the New Testament church took it down a road to a path 
that actually create a problem. I heard Dr. Kane in a class at Houston Baptist University in 1976 make a statement. And his statement was that the problem with the Trinitarian doctrine is it leads to tritheism. They didn't think that just letting that little bit of, uh, of philosophy of the world and, in, and how, how can it be? And, and they allowed the philosophy of the world to become part of the church. And now the New Testament church of 325 A.D. knew more than the apostles, Peter, John, James, Paul, Bartholomew, Thomas, they had a better understanding because they were more enlightened. They had a better revelation. Progressive revelation is the greatest doctrine from the pits of hell that has ever showed up. And when I start looking at it and trying to understand or argue if it's important or not, I've already let the leaven has already started to affect my life. So there's a subtle warning by Jesus to those men that day. You, you need to be aware. There's things you can let in your life that can start taking you places you have no intentions of going. If I could bring the people in here tonight that I have talked to through the years that have told me one recurring statement that I've heard hundreds of possibly thousands of times. And the statement I've heard repeatedly over and over and over was, how did I get here? It was never my intention to get to this point. How did I get here? What brought me to this place in life? How did I wind up where I am? I never intended to be here, but I just let the influence of uh, uh, maybe it's okay to let a few things in my life. And so I start letting things in. I am an old man. I understand that. And I am here at the end of my life. I probably don't have a whole lot of life left, according to the Word of God. Whatever God gives me, my life is at its end. I'll be 70 years of age next summer. And I... If I live the natural average, it's about 84, 85. So I might have 14 more years left to life at the most. That's only if God adds to the 70 years he gave me. So an old man is standing here today warning a younger generation. You're going to fight devils in the coming years that you have no idea what they're going to look like. If we think Facebook and Twitter are bad, you don't even realize what's just on the other side of that horizon that will be produced as a result of those things. When MySpace.com and Everybody's Connected came out, according to research, it became the number one pedophile site. Both of those were the number one pedophile sites of, of, of any place in America because that's where people could go to, to victimize children and cause chaos. And as a result that, that we thought that was important, we needed to be connected. We actually lost our ability to connect. People today don't really know how to have conversations. 
They can text, but that's not a conversation. The clickety-click is not a conversation because a conversation requires your brain looking at the influence of what your mouth is saying to the person in front of you. If I'm not seeing them, I have no clue what my words are doing to them. So if I'm not looking at them, I can say things that I would never say in person because in person, I can instantly see the hurt, the pain. I can see the anger. I, I, I can see the shock. And instantly, because my eyes see it, will cause me to stop. But our world has given us this ability to escape God's warning system. So what God put in us, we're taking out. God put anger and fear in our lives to protect us. You don't need to cast them out or get delivered from them. You need to understand why they're there. They're there to protect me. When anger shows up or fear shows up, that's an indication. My brain perceives this is a very dangerous environment. I am going to be hurt as a result. So anger shows up to help me to control those things that are happening in my life. Fear shows up for the same reason. But my world has taken fear and made it a source of pleasure. When you strap rubber bands around your feet and jump off of bridges to see how many times you can bounce, so you get an adrenaline rush, that, that's, you become addicted to adrenaline rush, and that's fear. So we've taken fear and made a source of pleasure. We've taken anger and made a source of pleasure. How'd that happen? Because there were little things that started taking place in our lives when we forgot how to reach across the aisle and connect to the people that are around us. When we, when we forgot how to make connections to people that are important, and, and you can't connect to people without being able to see them. I remember as a kid that Ma Bell sold the telephone to us by a slogan called Reach Out and Touch Someone. What a, what a lie. There is no greater lie that has ever been perpetrated in our world than that lie. When you call somebody on the phone, you cannot touch them. There's no way to, to vaporize your body, send it through that line and hug them on the other end. There, you're not touching nobody. But we assume those things as if they're real because that's what our world has taught us. So Jesus was saying to his disciples, be aware of what your world is trying to teach you. And don't let the world around you begin to cloud your vision of who you are, where you're going, and what you need to be doing in life. You, you don't allow the world to determine the outcome of your life. Your, your, your life is not based upon how many likes you get on Facebook. Even though, according to research, it causes major depression when people don't get up in the morning and somebody locked their post. It's causing all kinds of chaos as a result of, uh, of this false sense of, of value and who I am and what I am. See, my world has taught me that you pay attention to a package. That the package is more important than the content. 
It doesn't matter what's inside. What you look like outside is more important than anything else. That's the Sadducees. They use their money to make themselves look more important. So they figured out ways of weaving gold and, and ornaments and jewels into their hair so that when people walked by, they knew, whoa, they got lots of money. So today we just drive Lexuses and Mercedes and Porsches and, oh, I'm probably causing people a lot of problems right now because we want people to think we're important. We've we've let the world affect our view of who we are. I get my sense of value not from my relationship with God, but my relationship with people. And that's why people's lives are so messed up today. That's why there's so much chaos around us. Because if, if I think people are going to make me feel better about myself, then I am falsely deceived. My world can never make me feel better about me. The only thing that can make me feel better about myself is him. And, and what I need to present to my world is Jesus Christ. See, we become an embodiment. We're, we're Jonah, but we're not Jonah. We're Jesus Christ, and we are his representation. So when they see us, they shouldn't see what I look like. They should see what I am. When they see me, they are, when I walk away, they ought to say, well, there's something different about him. He made me feel different about myself. I, I, I thought I was in the presence of Jesus. You see, there are those in the New Testament that when people walked away, their statement was, I perceived they were with Jesus. I don't know that I've heard anybody say that in the last 20 years. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody make that statement that I perceive they've been with Jesus. The important thing about my life is not what I possess or I accumulate. The important thing in my life is when I get my connection to God right and I can walk through the doors into his house without my chin dragging the floor because I walk in with condemnation because I feel I'm worthless, I've done something wrong, I'm a mistake, I'm a nobody. We believe that God expects us to be perfect, and that's not true. The Bible never says he expects you to be perfect. He's coming back after a bride. That's a group of people. That's not one individual that's without spot and wrinkle. The church as a whole has to keep the garment pressed without wrinkle. But me as an individual, as a human being in that whole, God understands. David said in, I believe it's the 139th Psalm. Uh, no, it's 90-something Psalm. He remembered they were but flesh. God is not shocked when he looks at me and sees me fail. He don't have a panic attack or a heart failure and say, man, he's just worthless. He can't ever get anything right. He just says, all right, son, get up. Get up. Though a righteous man fall, he shall arise. 
Though he sit in darkness, the Lord shall be his life. If he falls seven times, he shall. He, he can get up. Why? Because we have the ability to have our lives washed every day of our life. It starts in the beginning by being washed in water and baptism. But the day I walk out of that baptistry and start living my life, I have the ability every day of my life to have my life washed. And that washing takes place by the preached word of God and by repentance and asking for forgiveness. We're washed by the word. So when we sit in the house of God, it's God's word that causes us to feel a cleansing as that cleansing purifies us and it, it confronts our thoughts and our ideas and, and some of our preconceived conceptions about life. And he, he causes us to look at ourselves. And we, we instantly... You see, I remember in 1988, some of you weren't even alive at that point, but I remember in 1988, there was incredible chaos swept through the church. The reason there was a little book is about four inches wide, four inches tall. I think it might have had 80 pages in it. It was printed on slick white paper, and the printing inside was newspaper. And the red letters on the covering stated, 88 reasons why the Lord is coming in 1988. There were over 500 backsliders showed up in the month of August and prayed through because they were convinced September would produce the return of the Lord. And I remember walking into church and hearing people make statements like, do you think I'm going to heaven? If you see anything in my life that keep me out of heaven, would, would you please let me know? And we were so concerned that we would not be able to go to heaven. That troubled me for a long time. And, and one day it, it dawned on me. There's an easy way for everybody to know if they're going to go to heaven. It's real simple. Everybody can do it. Actually, it was the, the lie detector that found out who stole the Babylonian garment when Israel crossed Jordan and went to Ai. And they lost the battle, and God told Joshua to shut up and get up. You got sin to count. Get the sin out. And he commanded them to get together by families and you come before the elder of the family and you give glory to God. That means you worship God. So God's way of letting us know where our heart's at is just get your hands up. When you get your hands up and you raise them in the air, see, you can't worship God with something in your life that shouldn't be there. The instant this goes up, it goes right across your mind. When this goes up, you remembered you said something kind of ugly to your wife that morning. When this goes up, you remember that you said something bad to somebody else, or you did this. Instantly, your brain, God, won't allow you to get by, and instantly it shows up. What do I do? Repent. My little children, sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sin, but not on our sin, but the sin of the whole world. 
if I fail, he says, get those hands up. If you can worship me, that means you're ready to go because you can't worship with sin in your life. Joshua proved that to us. Worship is the fruit of the lips, according to Paul in the Hebrew letter, and it lets us know whether or not God is saying, okay, son, I put my stamp of approval on your life. Doing good today. If I can worship and worship with true worship, there's the key. Worship has to be in spirit and in truth. My conscience has to be involved in this. And if my conscience is involved in this and truth is involved in this, then God can speak to my heart. God can direct my life. God can take me down a path that will change my life. So there are some subtle reminders Jesus gave us. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't you remember that when I fed 4,000 people, I didn't just feed 4,000 people. How many, what was left over? Well, there were 12 baskets. I not only gave everybody there enough food, Guys, there was enough food for you taking this boat for us to get across the lake. When I fed 4,000 people, how many baskets were left over? Five? Seven? These are not baskets. First one's a little bitty thing, like some people take an offering in. The seven is a basket about this tall. They put it on either side of an animal, put grain in it, and that's how they carried the grain. So they, we're, we're not talking about a little bitty. There, there, were, there were seven bush containers big enough to send food home to all those people that were there to have a supply to get home. Jesus said, if I, I can do that, what are you worried about a loaf of bread? You've got your eyes on the wrong thing. You, you need to focus your eyes on me. If you'll let me lead your life, you'll let me direct your life. If you'll let me take you where I desire to take you, I'll take you on a journey that you will never, never, never forget. There's nothing greater than living for Jesus. See, the problem with those who are looking for a sign, Nineveh saw that Jonah was God's representative. The queen of Sheba saw that Solomon was a man of incredible wisdom. But today, the question is not Jonah or queen of Sheba, question today is, what do you think about Jesus? That's the question. Where does he fit in my life? Is he the center of my life or is he an afterthought? Have I let my world take me to a place where I only see him as something I need occasionally or is he the center of my life? Is he the most important thing in my life? Am I going to be a Pharisee and try to keep people out or 
Sadducee that's going to get involved in politics and money and, and try to use their money and their political influence to change people? Or am I going to decide, you know what, I want to show the world Jesus. When I walk away, I want them to know that Jesus was there. I want them to see Jesus. Because the only hope of the world seeing Jesus today is you. And if they don't see him through you, they can't see him at all. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes, according to Paul's writing. They can't see him. But when you walk in and they see you, instantly they can see him because he's become the center of my life and he is, I'm living my life through him because he's the most important thing. Gracious Father, thank you for your incredible word. Thank you, Jesus, for putting in your word every story that was necessary. Out of the three and a half years you preached, we only have about 28 days of your life. So, Jesus, I know you said a whole lot more than what we know. You taught more lessons than what we have. There, there were more things you said, but you chose the important thing because your word declares that your spirit, through the unction of your spirit, holy men of old wrote as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. Thank you for moving on men to record what you suddenly warned us about, that we need to be aware that we don't let the world start affecting our life because leaven, just a little bit of it, begins to affect me in ways that will wreck my life and destroy me. So I need to make sure there's no leaven in my life to destroy me. All I need to do to make sure those not leaven there is to get back to an altar on a regular basis and repent and allow your spirit to cleanse me and wash me and make me whole again. So Jesus, I, I pray today that your children in their homes right now would, would begin to ask you today, what, would you forgive me, Jesus? Forgive me for words I've said that have hurt those that are around. Forgive me for letting my world cause me to think like them instead of like you. For, forgive me for losing hope and who you are and letting the fear and the panic of my world twist my view of you and make me think that you don't have a clue where I live, what street I'm on, or what's going on in my life. So, Jesus, I pray that your spirit would move in a heart right now. I pray that they'd feel your touch right now. I pray, Jesus, that we would repent and say, forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me for, for my fear. Forgive me for forgetting that you have never seen the righteous forsaken nor your seed out begging for bread. You never forget even the sparrow because you know when they fall. So you're not about to forget me. Thank you for your wonderful presence and spirit that we feel. Bless every home right now. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, the Lord bless you.